the sermon later on, but just a reminder that May 17th will be the Sunday that we begin uh, phase one to reopen the sanctuary on Sunday mornings only. Again, if you go to our website, www.edgewoodga.com or our Facebook page. Uh, you can find all the information that you need there as to uh, what our plan is and the guidelines for uh, phase one reopening. Uh, we are in our second Sunday of a study through the Gospel of Mark. And so I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll jump right in. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the richness of your word, especially in uh, the revelation, the insight that it gives us into the person of your son who has existed for all time and yet at a specific point in time took on a, a human nature uh, who walked this earth, uh, who lived the life that, uh, that we live and who has encountered all of the temptations and the challenges that we face and has done so perfectly. Thank you that by his substitutionary death in our place, we can be forgiven, we can be uh, reconciled with you and have a secure hope, uh, not only uh, in this life, but for a life to come in uh, a new age that will be uh, created when Christ returns to establish his kingdom here on earth. Uh, guide us now and give us insight, and it's in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Uh, I'm just going to uh, make a recommendation. One of the things that will be a challenge as we go through Mark, well, it's a challenge any Bible study we do actually, is um, that you want to spend more time on cross-references than the time that we have allotted to us. So if you anticipate being a part of this study, particularly in the live stream, on a regular basis, I would encourage you not only to, uh, to have your Bible with you or to have your Bible app open on your phone, uh, but it might also be handy just to have a, uh, a scratch sheet of paper, something to write with, so that you can jot down maybe some references that we'll mention this morning uh, on the side. Uh, you can go back a little bit later and look those things over if uh, your curiosity is piqued uh, or if you just wanna uh, dig in a little bit deeper. We'll try not to get lost uh, in too many, um, too many side, side paths, side tracks, um, but we want to stay on target. But some of these things are necessary to give to you, these, particularly some of these Old Testament cross-references, in order to get a good feel for what it is that Mark is doing as he unfolds the story of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so what I'm going to do, actually, I'm going to do something... Uh, a little bit different. I'm going to actually um, hold my place here in Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Um, remember last week, we had Mark's account of the gospel open up with uh, a statement about Jesus. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then when you get into the actual narration of the story, the story opens on the person of John the Baptist. John is the messenger who was sent ahead to prepare the way of the Lord. And we talked about the fact that in Isaiah, when you look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which Mark quotes from, that one of the interesting things that you have there is that the way that is being prepared is a way for Yahweh, for Jehovah, to appear to meet with his people in the wilderness as he returns to gather them 
uh, to restore them, to renew them. And that Jesus then is being seen very clearly in the opening of Mark to be that person who stands in the place of the Lord himself, of God himself, to do this work. And I want to uh, just demonstrate sort of dramatically the way that this unfolds, even as Jesus now comes on the scene in verse 9. So if you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, in that same chapter, verse 3 is the voice calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And if you skip down just a little bit further, listen to some of these uh, significant dramatic statements about what's going to happen uh, when the way has been prepared, uh, when this voice has called and has gathered the people together in anticipation. If you go down uh, to uh, verse 5, after this way is made for the Lord, it says in Isaiah 40, verse 5, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then a few more verses down. You can skip down to verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And now we go back to Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So in the drama, in the buildup, in the opening of, John, of Mark's gospel, I should say, the voice is calling out in the wilderness to make ready the way of the Lord. In the context of Isaiah 40, that way that's being prepared is a preparation for the appearance of God himself. The glory of Yahweh will be revealed and everyone will see it together. Here is your God, Isaiah 40, verse 9. And on the transition from verse 8 to verse 9 in Mark chapter 1, we find Jesus. It seems then that we're not stretching things too far to say that Mark has designed the opening of this story in such a way to make us interpret some of these dramatic Old Testament statements, for example, from Isaiah chapter 40, in such a way that we see Jesus as the one who stands in the place of God, because as we'll find as we continue to go along, He is God. He is the Son of God. But we need to move to, to what uh, Mark actually has to say about this, these opening scenes in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In verses 9 through 11, you have the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth. He was baptized by John on the Jordan, and then the descent of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Father from heaven. We want to start, and we want to take note of the fact that it is a little bit strange that the first thing that we read about Jesus is that he is baptized. After all, John has said very clearly that 
he baptizes with water, but there is one coming who is mightier than he, this mighty one who is coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus does come, and we assume as we're reading these verses that he is the mighty one that John has been speaking about, we're not expecting the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit to be baptized himself. That seems actually to be a little bit anticlimactic or at least to be taking two steps back. Why then, we might ask, when Jesus begins to publicly identify himself or when he is publicly revealed, why is it that his baptism is the very first thing that happens? Mark does not spend a lot of time, really does not spend any time delving into this. Uh, Matthew spends a little bit of time wrestling with the tension. John not wanting to baptize Jesus uh, because he believes that Jesus should be baptizing him. Probably the simplest thing to say at this point, because uh, Mark does not spend time discussing the, the tension here, is to say that because Jesus is baptized along with the people who are going out to Mark, or who is going out to John, that the indication is this is one of the ways in which Jesus identifies himself with the people. The Son of God takes on human flesh, a human nature, lives the human experience to identify himself, to create solidarity with his people whom he would save and redeem. And one of the ways that he does that is by identifying with them in this experience of baptism and further probably putting his seal of approval or affirming this ministry that John has of calling the people to repentance to confess their sins and to prepare for the coming kingdom. So Jesus then at the very outset of his public ministry is seen um, in a very close connected way living the life that his people are living. He himself is baptized, not because he has any sins to confess or repent, but because this is what he will do to be a perfect substitute for them as the story continues. And then significantly, when Jesus comes up out of the water, this is one of the few places in the Gospels where we have all three members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, very explicitly stated to be present and at work in one particular moment. The Spirit descends and uh, rests upon Jesus, and a voice comes out of the heavens, "'You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased.'" Here's one of those places where if you have a sheet of paper or uh, something you can write notes with, you want to jot down two Old Testament references, uh, Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2. The statement that comes from heaven, presumably the voice of the Father, seems to take two, two Old Testament statements and sort of combine them together to, uh, into one statement of affirmation. So in Psalm 2 a psalm about uh, God installing his anointed king, his Messiah, on the throne. We read in, I think it's in verse 7, the Lord says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Lord says to his anointed king, you are my son, signifying the unique relationship that all of Israel's kings were to have with the Lord himself. Of course, we know that in this case, 
This is not merely the kind of relationship that, say, a David would have with the Lord or Solomon had with the Lord, but that Jesus, because he is actually God's son in his very divine nature, that even this statement taken from Psalm 2 has a deeper significance and reality than what David, Solomon, any of the other Israelite kings could have experienced. And then the second Old Testament quote that seems to be alluded to here is in Isaiah 42, where uh, the statement is made, behold, my chosen one, or my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. There in Isaiah 42, verse 1, the idea is that this coming servant of the Lord who will do the work that the Lord desires and that the Lord has, has purposed, the servant of Yahweh is one who has the pleasure of God resting upon him, and it's most clearly signified and demonstrated by the fact that the Lord takes his, his spirit and places it on this chosen servant. So Jesus here in the baptism um, goes through this, this act that is weighted with significance. He steps into the waters of baptism and he identifies himself as one of the people that he's coming to save in that same way that his people are coming and confessing the need to be saved for sin. Jesus is showing that he is going to be that substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He identifies himself with the people who are in need of salvation. The statement from heaven from the Father saying that he uh, that this is his son reminds us of some of these lofty statements of Yahweh's son in Psalm 2 and how it was going to be this father-son relationship that the Lord would establish to create a king for his people. Jesus is now taking on the mantle not only of the son of God but also as the son of God who will reign and rule over his people. But also... In light of Isaiah 42, Jesus is also taking on himself the role of a servant. And it's not only his existence as the eternal son and that perfect pleasure that the father has with his son, but it's in the way that Jesus will act and perform the role of a servant to accomplish all of God's work that draws the favor of the Father on Jesus. Just one other thing we, uh, we might say uh, in this, this is just sort of a, uh, maybe a little bit of a side note, but the verb that, uh, that Mark uses when he talks about Jesus coming up out of the water and in verse 10 when he says that he saw the heavens opening, it's, it's a pretty unique word in the Greek. In Mark's gospel, the only other time that this word is used is towards the end of the gospel when it talks about the curtain in the temple being torn. So you might say here, in order to get the significance of this verb in the beginning and at the end of Mark, that when Jesus comes up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit coming down, descending upon him. At the end, when Jesus offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, the curtain in the temple will be torn 
indicating that the way into the Holy of Holies has been opened up. Interestingly enough, there's also another reference in Isaiah that seems to perhaps play into the background of this statement where I think it's in Isaiah 64. The author is expressing his desire for God to come in a very dramatic way to save his people. And he makes a statement in Isaiah 64.1, oh, that you would rend or that you would tear the heavens apart and come down. Here again, it's somewhat paradoxical that in preparing the way of Yahweh, in the people being ready to see the glory of the Lord, in the people anticipating from passages like Isaiah 40 that they are about to meet with their God, what you get is a very normal-looking person coming from this insignificant town of Nazareth. And that when the heavens are torn open so that God can descend and rescue his people, no one apparently is there to witness it. No one is able to see the heavens being torn open as the Spirit descends upon Jesus and as God now begins to move in human form, in human flesh, to begin the rescue operation to redeem his people. From there, we pick up at verse 12. Immediately, this is one of Mark's favorite words. He does very little with transitions. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him, that is Jesus, to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Perhaps one of the things that we could say when we consider that Jesus is baptized as a way to identify himself with his people is that as Mark continues to tell the story and we begin to understand more clearly what it means to follow Jesus, that wherever Jesus goes, we go, that there is a sort of a back and forth relationship in Jesus identifying with his people. On the one hand, Jesus identifies with the people he came to save in such a way that he will experience all that they experience, weakness, temptation, suffering, but also because he comes to open up a new way and because he, he comes to call people to follow him, not only does Jesus experience what we experience, but we then are called to experience or to share in the experience of Jesus himself. So when Jesus is compelled by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to go out into the wilderness where he is going to be tested and tempted, we can look at that act as two sides of one coin. On the one hand, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he will experience the temptations and the kind of testing that we experience in our fleshly living. Even so, the other side of that coin is to say that for those who will come to understand what it means to follow Jesus, following Jesus does not mean moving from darkness into light in such a way that life becomes bright, shiny, happy, smooth, easy, comfortable. If the Holy Spirit, in other words, can compel the Son of God with whom the Father 
is well pleased, if the Spirit can compel the Son to go into the wilderness and for an extended period of time to do battle with the enemy, should we be surprised if in God's wise purposes and plans, by the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, He sends us into various stages and experiences and scenarios of life where we find ourselves unusually tested, even tempted. Jesus goes out into the wilderness, it said, He's out there uh, for 40 days. Probably, this has again the significance of Jesus being shown to identify as the people or to be true Israel. And in the same way, in other words, that Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years being tested. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In the same way that Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years being tested, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. Of course, the difference is, is that whereas Israel fails multiple times in her time of testing, for God to see what is in her heart, to see whether or not she would obey and keep the word of the Lord. Jesus shows himself to be victorious over sin and temptation, to defeat Satan himself, and to show that in his heart of hearts, his one and only desire is to honor the Father by walking in obedience to his word. He's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted, and along with that, we're told at the end of verse 13 that he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. I think probably what you have here is a contrast between what Jesus is encountering and experiencing. So on the one hand, you would have uh, Satan and the wild beasts. And on the other hand, you would have the spirit resting upon Jesus or within Jesus, and then also angels ministering to him. If we can go back for a minute and consider, once again, the two sides of the coin in which Jesus both takes on our human experience, but also draws us, invites us, calls us to share in his experience, it is encouraging to consider that in those times in which we feel as if we've been sent out thrust out into our own time of wilderness testing, that not only do we have the assurance that uh, this does not mean separation from the Father, God does not send His Son into the wilderness because He is not pleased with Him, quite the opposite. He is well pleased with Him. And this is a time for the Son to reveal that perfect relationship between Father and Son. He does not send us into our time of wilderness testing or experience in order to punish us or to cause us to fail, but in order to create the opportunity for the reality of our relationship with the Father to be put on display. And that being said, in that time of testing, in the same way that Jesus goes into the wilderness with the Spirit of God. Everywhere that we go, we know that we carry the Spirit of God with us as well. And we could even go so far as to say that there probably is some similarity in the fact that just as Jesus was ministered to by the angels, perhaps not in the same sort of dramatic or clearly experiential way that Jesus would have known it, 
but we should anticipate or believe that there is in some way God's kindness demonstrated to us in the angelic service that he offers his children as well. At the end of Hebrews chapter 1, when the author of Hebrews is saying that the Son is of much greater value and glory and reputation than even the angels who are in God's throne room. At the very end of Hebrews chapter 1, he says concerning angels, aren't they all ministering spirits sent out to render aid to those who will inherit salvation? It would be a little foolish to try to make more out of that statement than what Scripture clearly indicates, but it does say at the very least that just as God has given us his spirit to comfort us, to direct us, to give us insight, to illumine us, to protect us and seal us, in the same way he has also given the angelic realm certain assignments and authorities to minister, to serve, to strengthen his people. I don't know how that works. I don't know what it looks like. I don't even know that we necessarily can experience it or know it for certain, but we take it as a statement of faith that in our wilderness experiences, in our times of testing, we have not been abandoned and we are not alone. Finally then, verses 14 and 15, and this is where we'll conclude our study for this morning. After his, time, after his baptism, after his time of testing, we're told in verses 14 and 15, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Time really doesn't permit us to get into a, a lengthy discussion here, but let me just point out uh, something about these statements concerning the gospel. This is a, a really good example of how you have to be careful when you're working through Scripture that you don't take a, a word that shows up and you automatically um, attach to it a sort of, um, what, flat or static definition, particularly in cases where it's obvious that the word can be used in a variety of contexts or with different shades of meaning. So for example, when it comes to this word gospel, oftentimes when we hear the word gospel, we think of things like the Romans road or uh, that we can be forgiven of our sins. Uh, we think of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says um, he makes known to them, he delivers to them the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, raised again, on the third day according to the scriptures. That, he says, is the gospel. Obviously here, though, that can't be the meaning of the gospel because Jesus has not died. Jesus has not been buried. He has not been raised again. So in what sense can Jesus be preaching the gospel in Mark 1.15? Probably the way to understand this is that what Jesus goes about doing in his ministry is that he begins to preach the good news of God, God's good news, good news about the kingdom, and that rather than going to one verse or maybe two or three verses, that what this good news is, is nothing less than all of these promises, all of these expectations that were tied together in the Old Testament about how God was going to come and reestablish a kingdom with his people, that there would be finally and forever 
one of David's descendants, a Davidic king ruling and reigning perfectly over the people in a kingdom that would never be taken away, that not only Israel but the entire world would come to see the true God, the true creator, and would come to bow and worship before him. Jesus then comes into his public ministry preaching, and he's preaching about the fact that that kingdom is near. And just like John, interestingly enough, Jesus also calls people to repent. Tying these two ideas together then, we want to take note of the fact that one of the or the distinguishing mark of those who hear the news about God's kingdom, those who would hear the news about how the kingdom is established by the person of Jesus Christ, those who hear and believe that message are those who repent. I don't think, particularly as you go in, as Mark opens up the story of Jesus here, when it's shown that John is preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and when Jesus himself comes and is calling people to repentance, I just don't see that there's any other way to understand what it means to follow Jesus than to begin to follow him in repenting of your sin. And we might even go further and say that as we get deeper into this story, that repentance does not appear to be a one-time event either. Repentance is that perhaps that first sign or mark of someone who has truly come to see Jesus for who he is, who has truly begun to put his hope and his confidence in the kingdom that is to come. But all through church history, godly men and women have recognized that true repentance is not something that happens at the beginning, but repentance is something that happens repeatedly in a follower of Christ. Because to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to follow his perfect example is to be reminded over and over again about how much we need Jesus because of our failures and because of our disobedience. And so I will have that repentance when I turn from my life, from my sins, to see Jesus for who he is and to submit to him and to follow him. But all of my life from that point forward until I'm finally perfected at the end, all of my life will be marked by ongoing repentance. And yet repentance that is marked with hope and confidence in the fact that even in my failures, God's kingdom continues to press on and that nothing that I do in my sin, in my rebellion, in my disobedience will ultimately thwart God's plans for me or for the world. So from here we'll go into next Sunday, we'll begin to see Jesus as he begins to encounter people specifically in specific contexts and we'll see Jesus interacting and beginning to face opposition. At this point we have just the basic prologue, if you will, to the story of the kingdom being announced, of the king of the kingdom being revealed, albeit in somewhat of an unassuming way, and of the overall message being one of repentance to prepare for what God is going to do through his anointed king. Let's pray. Father, thank you that 
in your kindness to us where we stand in redemptive history, we are able to look back with so much clarity and to see exactly who Jesus is in the pages of Scripture. That what the disciples, what the average person would wrestle with, would fight with, um, would really have a hard time coming to understand is something that is so readily available to us. Father, I pray that for those of us who have repented, who have turned to Christ and who have been united with him, that you would give us greater clarity into the majesty and the glory of our King. And that, Father, if there is anyone listening or watching this morning, uh, perhaps who has not done that, that you would, by your word and by the uh, conviction and renewal of your Holy Spirit, that you would begin to give them eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of who Jesus is and what it is that he offers in forgiveness and in a coming kingdom. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for that Sunday school lesson, and I uh, know God's going to wonderfully bless this uh, study of Mark as uh, we focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But good morning, and uh, we welcome you to the Edgewood Baptist uh, Church services uh, on this absolutely beautiful Lord's Day. The only thing that's missing is you, and you are truly deeply missed. Uh, you are loved and uh, I want you to know you are being prayed for. I'm praying for uh, you regularly, uh, as well as the uh, uh, elders, the ministerial staff, and, um, and we're looking forward to getting back together. And as you know, uh, we have announced that two weeks from today, uh, May 17th, uh, we will begin uh, meeting back together uh, for a combined Sunday school and then worship service right here in the sanctuary. Uh, that combined Sunday school will begin at uh, 10 o'clock with uh, Jonathan continuing to lead that. He'll go until right about 10.25. There'll be a 10-minute break, and then we'll start the worship service at 10.35. Uh, you should have received uh, from the elders this week in the mail. If you did not get it this week, you'll definitely get it the first of next week. Uh, a letter that gives all the guidelines we need to abide by uh, in light of our continued struggle with the uh, coronavirus. Of course, uh, the main thing is to maintain uh, social uh, distancing. Uh, you'll see on those guidelines initially, we will not be able to provide child care, uh, but we are going to offer multiple rooms where if you have a child that needs to be cared for or a disruptive child, you can take them to that room, uh, take uh, adequate care for them, and there'll be a monitor in all of those rooms where you can continue to see uh, the live stream. So please look for that letter. Please read that over. It's very important that we maintain those guidelines as we initially get back together. You can also go to the church website, edgewoodga.com, and you'll see right at the top of the uh, uh, homepage uh, a link that you can go into that will also give you all of those uh, uh, guidelines. Uh, if you are visiting uh, through the live stream today, not a member of Edgewood Baptist Church, thank you for tuning in, and we trust God will bless you. And as we begin to get back together on May 17th, we would uh, encourage you to uh, participate uh, with us. I want to thank the church family uh, for your wonderful faithfulness in giving 
over these last two weeks when we have not been able to meet together. Uh, but of course, I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in your giving. Uh, as you know, the church offices uh, remain open Monday uh, through Thursday from 9 to 5. So you can bring your offering by the church office at any time that the offices are open. You can mail your offering into the church. And of course, we have online giving. Again, just go to the church homepage. You'll see the upper right-hand corner, uh, a link to giving. And you just go into that link, follow the instructions. It's very simple. And we have seen uh, a tremendous increase in on online giving during this uh, time. But again, thank you for your giving, and we encourage you to uh, continue to be uh, faithful in your giving. So uh, right before I turn it over to uh, Andy uh, to lead us in a time of praise and worship through music, uh, bow with me in prayer. Father, we uh, are thankful during this uh, time that we have not been able to meet together to be able to provide uh, the services and the Sunday school lesson by means of the live stream. And we trust this has blessed many and that will bless many uh, today. Father, we thank you for the many that we've been praying for in recent weeks that have uh, suffered uh, loss of loved ones. Thank you that those individuals are knowing your comfort and your strengthening. Uh, thank you for the many that we've prayed for, like uh, Sarah Worthington and uh, the Gaylor's daughter. Uh, related to physical affliction, all of them are doing better, uh, at home, uh, improving, and we praise you for that. We continue to cry out to you uh, for mercy on our nation as we continue to uh, battle uh, the virus. Uh, Lord, we pray in your infinite mercy that you would uh, stop its spread as we have been praying, that you'll grant great wisdom and knowledge to the uh, medical community uh, that are creating uh, treatments and, of course, ultimately uh, a vaccine uh, to address the issue of the uh, virus. Lord, we thank you for our health uh, workers, uh, truly heroes during this time. And we pray you would bless, shield, protect them as they uh, minister to uh, the many that have uh, the virus. And uh, we pray that you would encourage their hearts in you. Lord, we pray as only you can in a time of crisis. Use this uh, to get our uh, nation's attention, uh, to draw our affections and our allegiance uh, back to you as we truly would turn from our sin uh, to embrace Jesus, uh, our creator and our redeemer, uh, to follow him. So Lord, uh, we ask in your mercy, uh, revive this nation. And Lord, we know uh, this nation will not be revived apart from your people becoming revived first. And so, Lord, let that revival begin in the household of God, uh, in the church family. Let it begin right here at Edgewood. And then, Lord, let it uh, spread uh, throughout the entire uh, nation. Uh, Lord, I uh, uh, pray that as we uh, praise you, as we uh, worship you today, uh, you truly would liberate our hearts to know the, your joy as we focus on you, as we find our delight in you and you delight in us. And then as we move forward towards the message, uh, Lord, just continue uh, to grant us that spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. Continue to open the eyes of our hearts that we would see as your people what is the hope of your calling on our lives, on our church family, that we would uh, 
have our eyes open to the riches of your glory that you've deposited in us. You would teach us through faith how to appropriate all of those riches, all the grace that you've given us, uh, all the blessings, all the gifts, uh, that all of that would be used and employed uh, to fulfill the calling you have placed on our lives. And then, Lord, open our eyes to that exceeding greatness of the power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead that dwells in us. And may we know that power, bringing change and transformation to our lives this day, that uh, through our lives, Jesus would be lifted up, exalted, and magnified, for it's in his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andy. And uh, before we get started in our worship today, I wanted to share with you a little something. Um, many of us uh, have seen the effects of this pandemic and virus in numerous ways, not just the virus itself, but the after effects uh, of it. Um, many of us are isolated in our homes. Many of us are suffering from depression. Many of us are suffering from anxiety. Um, for being alone, being shut up, being shut off from the world. Uh, we feel lonely. We feel as though nobody cares, maybe. Um, and these are some of the after effects of basically our world shutting down for two months. Um, and as I think about many people who, the, the elderly who may be in their homes, I think about my little son who's a little over two years old now. His name is Harper. Many of you know him. Many of you have met him, seen him running down the, the sanctuary pews. Not on the pews, but, but um, running down the aisles. Um, one of the things that uh, he loves is Buzz Lightyear. That is his hero. Many of you have seen Toy Story 1, 2, 3, and 4. Buzz Lightyear is like any little kid's hero, right? So uh, Buzz Lightyear is his hero. That's all he talks about. He probably got seven Buzz Lightyears that he plays with. Um, God really convicted me through that Buzz Lightyear one day and basically said, look, you know, that is his hero. That's his figure. He holds him high. He wants to sleep with him every night. Um, so God just put it on my heart and, and said, look, you need to go buy him a Jesus little figure. And so, man, it wasn't like a week after then, me and my wife went um, on, our, on an anniversary trip and we went to a store and went shopping. The first store we went in, we saw a plastic Jesus sitting right in front of us. I said, I don't care how much he is, we got to buy him because I want Harper to know that Jesus Christ is his hero, not Buzz Lightyear. So I brought the Buzz Lightyear home and of course he was so excited. Um, just a little bitty action figure. Um, and I told him, I said, Harper, um, whenever you get scared, whenever you get lonely, I want you to put this little Jesus in your bed and know that he is right there with you. He's going to protect you. He protects all. And he loves you. Um, and so every night he sleeps with this, this uh, Jesus along with about ten other toys. Uh, they give him comfort. And, and I always remind him, you know, this little figure is going to protect you. He doesn't really understand that, hey, there really is a Jesus out there. And, and he's protecting him. He's, he's in heaven. But he understands that that little figure is right there protecting him. And the same goes for you. I'm reminded of a scripture, Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Um, there's a little song that Harper loves uh, right before he goes to bed that just gives him comfort. And it speaks of how Jesus loves him. It speaks of how he is weak and, and God is strong. Um, and I want us to just sing that together. I don't know where you are in your home right now. You may be shut down and, and away from the world, but I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you. 
that when in your weakness, he is made strong. He is glorified. And so I'm just going to ask this, everybody just kind of be, be seated in a state of worship to God as we sing along this wonderful song, and I think you'll know it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, he who died. I couldn't run, couldn't run from 
from his presence I couldn't run, couldn't run from his arms Jesus, he loves me He loves me He is for me Jesus, how can it be He loves me He is for me It was a
claim it there. My anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord alone. He is Lord, Lord of all. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. then in him be found just in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne would you repeat that faultless there faultless to stand before the mighty word of God before us, Lord, that you would speak boldly through him, that you would anoint him with your hand. God, direct our hearts to turn towards you in this moment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And thank you, uh, Andy. What a great song, Cornerstone. And uh, it's really a, a song that goes very well uh, with the message today. Uh, just in case you have uh, just uh, tuned in, uh, let me remind you that we plan to resume uh, Sunday morning services two weeks from today on May 17th, but that is with some very specific uh, guidelines. And again, you can uh, look at those guidelines by going to the homepage of our church website, also on our Facebook page, and uh, you'll find a link there to the guidelines. And then if you're a church family, if you have not already received from the elders a letter um, listing all of those guidelines, you will this next week, so be looking for that. But we are excited uh, that we can uh, take this uh, first step in getting back together. Uh, during our time 
of not meeting together, uh, my sermon series has been placing faith in God uh, during times of adversity. My motivation for the series, of course, has been our battle with the coronavirus. This morning, we come to the final message in the series, which I've entitled, Climbing Up Out of the Valley of Depression. Why a message on depression? Our battle with the coronavirus has greatly aggravated the problem of depression, triggered by health and financial concerns and the stress uh, created by prolonged quarantine and isolation. We're going to look at the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who fell into the valley of depression. Elijah is one of the greatest heroes of faith in the Bible, uh, known for his courage to stand alone for God and his zeal for God's glory. So even before we begin our lesson, we learn if someone like Elijah was not immune from depression, nobody is. Virtually every hero of the faith in the Bible struggled with depression. For example, just a casual reading of David's Psalms reveals his frequent battle with depression. In Psalm 38, uh, David wrote, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. My heart throbs, my strength fails, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. The Apostle Paul had bouts with depression. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he wrote, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And then in chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, he wrote, Our flesh has no rest. But we are afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comfort us. Even Jesus in his humanity, a sinless and perfect man, did not escape depression. In Gethsemane, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Let me rehearse the circumstances that brought uh, Elijah uh, to a place of depression. The king of Israel was evil Ahab, married to wicked Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel led the nation of Israel into gross idolatry and immorality. Jezebel executed all of God's prophets, except for Elijah and 100 other prophets that were hid and fed in caves by a godly man named Obadiah. Elijah pronounced a drought on the land as God's judgment. After three years of severe drought and famine, 
during which Ahab searched extensively for Elijah to kill him, Elijah suddenly appears and confronts Ahab. He tells Ahab to gather the entire nation on Mount Carmel, along with the 950 false prophets of Baal. So picture the scene uh, recorded in 1 Kings uh, 18. Elijah literally standing alone for God against Ahab, the army of Israel, 950 false prophets, and all the citizens of Israel. Elijah turns to the children of Israel and says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Jehovah is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people respond with absolute silence. Elijah then challenges the Baal prophets to a contest. Each are to build an altar, kill an animal sacrifice, place it on the altar. The Baal prophets will pray to Baal. Elijah will pray to Jehovah. Whichever God sends fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice will be declared the true God. Elijah turns to the Baal prophets and says, you go first. They pray to Baal from morning until evening, and it is quite a show. They do all sorts of gyrations, jumping and leaping around the altar, cutting themselves with swords. Elijah mocks them. He says, hey, maybe you need to uh, cry louder to Baal because uh, Baal is either occupied or maybe he's on some long journey or maybe you need to awaken Baal from sleep. Finally, Elijah says, my turn. He repairs an altar of the Lord that had been torn down during these days of idolatry and unbelief. And he lays the sacrifice on the altar. He digs a huge trench around the altar, pours water over the altar and sacrifice, not once, but three times, so much so that the trench itself literally overflows with water. Then Elijah prays, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today, Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Fire falls from heaven, completely consumes the sacrifice, the stone altar even licks up all the water in the trench. The people cry out, Jehovah is God. Elijah tells them to seize the bell prophets and all 950 are executed. Poetic justice for Jezebel's execution of God's prophets. Elijah tells Ahab to hurry down the mountain 
to his royal residence in the city of Jezreel because God is ending the drought and sending heavy rains. Elijah, on foot, outruns Ahab in his chariot a distance of 20 miles to Jezreel. It is obvious Elijah is sky high from his victory on Mount Carmel, which brings us to the end of 1 Kings chapter 18. At the beginning of chapter 19, Ahab shares with Jezebel all that Elijah had done and that the Baal prophets had been executed. Jezebel then sends a messenger to Elijah saying this in verse 2, may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, one of those bell prophets by tomorrow about this time. In other words, Jezebel basically said to Elijah, Elijah, you are now a dead man walking, and I'm giving you notice. You have about 24 hours to live before I take your life. That single threat by a woman triggered Elijah's downward spiral into severe depression. First, Elijah experienced fear and flight. Verse 3 of chapter 19 says, He was afraid and arose and ran for his life. Here is your classic panic attack. And run he did. Elijah ran 100 miles to Beersheba on the southernmost Uh, border of Israel. And after Beersheba, there was nothing but a desert wasteland that could not sustain life. Elijah kept running scared right into the desert, which in in its of itself was a death sentence. Worry, as we saw in a previous message, is becoming so afraid over what might or might not happen in the future, you become distracted from seeing and trusting God in the present. And this is exactly what happened to Elijah as he became fearful concerning Jezebel's threat. Elijah became so fixated on Jezebel that her threat became more certain than God's promise. And her power and reach greater than God's. In Elijah's mind, Jezebel's pursuit of him was more real than God's presence with him. Elijah lost sight of God. This brought on feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. Elijah ran from his responsibilities, his relationships, including his relationship with God, until he collapsed in the desert under the weight of his depression. What followed, fear and flight, a failure complex. In verse 4, Elijah says in the desert, I am not better than my fathers. In other words, his mind is flooded with negative and critical thoughts about himself. He's a loser. He's a mistake. He's a failure. He's saying, I'm good for nothing. Then came futility to the point of desiring death. In verse 4, we also read, he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. I've had enough. 
Now, O Lord, take my life. After days of the adrenaline rush brought on by the fear that caused the flight, and as Elijah became more and more depressed over his failure and the futility of his situation, extreme fatigue sets in. We read in verse 5, and he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, just a large bush uh, that you would find in the desert in the Middle East. Elijah was spent physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There was nothing left in the tank. It is absolutely stunning to see how this great man of God went from his mountaintop victory on Mount Carmel to fall headlong into the valley of depression the same day. But we should not be surprised, should we? We've all traveled the valley of depression. Most of us listening right now, watching right now, we have experienced tremendous fear. This caused us to take flight from our responsibilities and relationships, to be overcome with those feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. We've struggled, like Elijah, with thoughts of failure, that we're worthless. No better than trash. It just ought to be thrown away. We've hit that place of utter futility where we've had enough. We can't take it anymore. And death seems so sweet as if that's the only place that we'll ever be able to find any peace. And then we've all known the fatigue that couples all of that, where you're just drained of everything. And you become so exhausted, you just can't function any longer. Now, let me suggest several observations why I believe Elijah fell into depression. Now, these are not implicitly necessarily stated in the text, but I think they're very obvious. And the first one is this. Elijah let his guard down in the aftermath of the victory on Mount Carmel. Think about this. As he had prayed on Mount Carmel, Elijah believed that the people's hearts would turn back to the Lord and that everything in the nation would change. As a result, he let his guard down and he never anticipated Jezebel's counterattack. He had just spent three years with Ahab trying to hunt him down and kill him and now, here we go again. You ever been there? Where that same old person or that same old problem or that same old struggle, it just won't let you go. And just you're just battered, 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 battered again and again and again. 
Now, beloved, here, here's the reality that Elijah needed to face and we need to face. This is not a feel-good truth, but until you embrace it, you will repeatedly succumb to depression. And here it is. To win one battle is not to win the war. Any more than to lose one battle is to lose the war. As believers, we need to realize planet Earth is a battlefield. Every believer is Christ's soldier to advance His kingdom and rescue those captured by sin. We have an adversary, the devil, who's unrelenting in his attacks against us. And this war will not end until Jesus returns. And this brings us to a strategic application. Think of soldiers after winning a battle. They know they cannot relax until they set up a perimeter defense and establish effective communications with headquarters. Why? Because more than likely a counterattack is coming from the enemy. And the same is true in spiritual warfare. You're never more vulnerable than after you've experienced a victory. After a victory, you must set up a perimeter defense in God's Word to guard your mind and heart against the counterattack from the devil. You must maintain effective communications with God through prayer to be resupplied, renewed, refreshed, re-strengthened, and receive new orders from God. Our tendency after a spiritual victory or after things have gone well for a while and we're just sort of gladly coasting along, is to let our guard down, to become lax about spiritual disciplines. But that's the worst thing that we can do because it's then when we need to be more on guard than ever before in terms of the devil's attacks. Now, here's the second observation. I believe at the heart of Elijah's depression was disappointment with God. He had just stood alone for God on Mount Carmel at great peril to his life. He said in his prayer, he had done everything according to God's Word, and this is what he gets in return for his ministry and his obedience to the Lord, a brief superficial revival on Mount Carmel that brought no lasting change to the heart of the nation's leadership or the nation's people, and his life is in greater peril now than ever before. As we will see later, when God confronts Elijah, Elijah actually whines to God. He throws a pity party, and he invites God to his party. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Never, never, ever forget, when you do not get the outcome you seek from God, the devil will work overtime to put a wedge between you and God. The devil will engage 
in psychological warfare to make you think God has failed you. He wants you to feel forsaken, helpless, and hopeless. And listen, the devil's ultimate goal is not the depression. No, that's not his ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to weaken your faith because the devil knows without faith it's impossible to please God. It is faith that releases God's power in the battle to get the victory over the devil. The battle with the depression will be won or lost in your mind, in your thought life. You know, I am, I am thankful. I am truly thankful for medication uh, to aid in relieving uh, depression's pain and to help uh, with chemical imbalances. But the focus must be to change your thinking because it is a person's outlook and perspective on life that determines their feelings and emotions. If you let negative and discouraging thoughts go unchecked and unchallenged, those thoughts are going to flood into your heart. And then eventually you're just going to believe them. That, that those negative, critical, discouraged, that's, that's just the absolute truth about you and about life and about God. One of the keys in overcoming depression, and I say this out of many years' experience, having walked with God now for 50 years, one of the keys is to stop listening to yourself and to start talking to yourself. You often see this in the Psalms. The writer of the Psalm will often preach God's truth to himself in order to correct his own erroneous thinking. A good example is Psalm 42, where King David checks his feelings of despair by giving himself a good talking to. Twice in the same psalm, he repeats to himself, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You climb out of the valley of depression by feeding on God's Word and bringing your thoughts in harmony with God's truth. I'll give you a wonderful prescription that can help with depression. And uh, I've shared this with many people. Um, my wife just shared with me that she's been struggling uh, with depression in these days with the, uh, all the isolation, everything's been involved with the virus. And she just shared with me yesterday uh, that she has been doing what I'm about to share with you and how it has immensely helped her and, uh, and brought her out of that uh, to renew her strength and joy in the Lord. And that's simply to read five Psalms a day. And you just begin with the uh, day of the month that it is. For example, today is what? May 3rd. So you would read Psalm 3, and then you read every 30th Psalm. In other words, today you would read Psalm 3. Then what? Psalm 33, 63, 93, 123. And it will be amazing how that will minister to you. I'll do this very, very quickly. We're not going to be able to read these Psalms, but I just want to give you a taste of this. For example, today you would begin with Psalm 3. And you'll, when uh, 
who wrote Psalm 3? David. You know when? When he was in the wilderness. In one of the greatest crises in his life, when he was fleeing the military coup by Absalom, who was trying to snatch the kingdom from his dad. And David writes, Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, but you, O Lord, or a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. And then you go to Psalm uh, 33. We really don't know the occasion for this psalm. Many believe it was written during a time of national crisis, uh, but we read down in verses 18, 19, and 20, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And then you go to Psalm 63, another psalm of David. Again, he's back in that wilderness, probably related again to uh, the circumstances with, with Absalom. And he says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then he goes on in verses 3 and 4, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. And then you go to Psalm 93, and right at the very beginning of the psalm, we're reminded that our God is on the throne. He's still there, still in control. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded Himself with strength. And then you go to Psalm 123, and that is one of those beautiful psalms of the degree, psalm of the ascents that I believe uh, were compiled by King Hezekiah uh, to celebrate uh, the miraculous deliverance God gave uh, the city of Jerusalem from the Assyrian invasion. And he writes right up front, to you, I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heaven. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes Look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. You can see how powerful that can be in terms of ministering to your thought life, correcting some of those discouraging, erroneous, critical, negative thoughts, and then as a result, having an impact on you emotionally. So I would encourage you, if you're struggling right now with the depression, as my wife admitted she was, I encourage you to do that and see the difference that it makes. Let me make the third observation. Not only did he let his guard down, not only do I believe at the heart of his discouraged uh, depression was a disappointment with God, but uh, Elijah probably be estimate, overestimated his own strength. You know, no one continually go full throttle without becoming physically exhausted and mentally and emotionally drained. Uh, it's obvious you're going to have to idle at times to renew your strength. And if you don't find a proper balance between work and re relaxation, like Elijah, it's obvious you're going to become burned out and depressed. And then my fourth and final observation, before we look at how God helped Elijah deal with his depression, Elijah isolated himself from others. The book of Proverbs says, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. 
He quarrels against all sound wisdom. You cannot live the Christian life as a lone ranger. We desperately, desperately need one another. I did a series a few years ago on all the one another passages in the New Testament that emphasize the importance of the church family, of coming together to encourage one another, lift one another, hold one another accountable. And that is so very important. Now, what did God do to heal Elijah's depression? I want you to see three things. First, and it's interesting where God began, he ministered to Elijah's physical needs by providing him proper nutrition and adequate rest. In verses 5 through 8, in chapter 19, we read, Elijah lay down, and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel. This reminds us of uh, Jonathan's uh, Sunday school lesson with Jesus in the wilderness. And there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he, Elijah, looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. He went back to sleep. After a period of sleep, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb or Sinai, the mountain of God. You know, sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do, and hear me, the most spiritual thing a person can do sometimes is eat a good meal, get a good night's sleep, get away a few days for relaxation. There's a close relationship between our physical and emotional state. Getting good nutrition, enough sleep, sufficient exercise, while no absolute guarantee against depression, may help prevent it and, of course, will certainly help you deal with it. Even Jesus recognized this and said to His disciples, come apart and rest a while. If you do not learn to relax, you will either become a basket case or a casket case. The second thing God did was minister to Elijah's emotional needs by allowing him to freely vent his frustrations. He uh, brings Elijah uh, to Mount Sinai uh, where he uh, encountered him there. And uh, verse 9, we read, And the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responded, as we saw earlier, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel, forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Again, he's just throwing a pity party. And then when you go down to verse 13, after God lets him express himself, and behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then notice, 
Same thing. Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. Poor little me. I'm left alone. And they seek my life to take it away. And I think there's a little bit of an inference is, and where have you been in all of this? Now, as we have already observed, at the heart of Elijah's depression was probably disappointment with God. And I think this is beautiful. Notice, God allowed Elijah to freely talk about his disappointment, to express his feelings of anger and self-pity. And God never interrupted Elijah. God never judged Elijah. Not once did God, in surprise, uh, gasp and say, Elijah, I would never have imagined that of you. Shame on you, Elijah. Never once. God knows the suffering can only be endured when the pain is articulated. And that is the first step to healing. God invites you to be real with him, to take off the mask, to pour out your heart to him, to pour out to him your disappointment, your hurt. It's okay if you invite him to your pity party. He won't scold you. He'll listen to you. He will love you unconditionally, and he'll give you grace to persevere in faith. And then third, not only did he minister to him physically, by giving him the nutrition and the sleep and the rest he needed. Not only did he minister to him emotionally by allowing him to freely vent and articulate his pain without interrupting or judging him. Third, God ministered to Elijah spiritually by, figuratively speaking, taking him to church on Mount, Car uh, Mount Sinai. At the root of depression, it's very obvious, as we've already noted, is a distorted view of God or, or ourselves. Uh, worship, God's Word, and prayer are powerful anti-depressions to correct our outlook on life and renew our joy. In 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12, we read, Then God said to Elijah, Go out. And stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. God demonstrated to Elijah that the still, small voice of God speaking to the human heart is more powerful than any miraculous display of God's power. The cure for depression is not a miracle from God. It's not getting the outcome in life you desire. The cure for depression 
is developing an intimate relationship with Christ where you hear and follow his still, small voice. God also corrected, and I think this is interesting, Elijah's false sense of importance, as if God's work was dependent on Elijah. In fact, God had already chosen Elijah's successor, Elisha, who also would become the friend that Elijah desperately needed. God also let Elijah know he was not finished with him yet, and he gives him several tasks to complete to affirm his love for Elijah, to affirm that God valued Elijah. He still needed him. He wasn't finished with him yet. He still had work for him to complete. And then I love what God did in verse 18. God affirmed the impact of Elijah's ministry. Because the success on Mount Carmel was so short-lived, Elijah viewed his ministry a failure. I mean, it's so obvious. You know, he, he, he had all his hope that after what happened on Mount Carmel, everything was going to change spiritually. There'd be a fresh renewal and revival that would be long-lasting. But that didn't happen. And it just became the same old, same old with him on the run. But God pointed out to Elijah, 7,000 people, 7,000 people scattered throughout the nation who had not bowed to Baal, who had remained faithful and true to God, not due to Elijah's miracles, not because fire fell down from heaven, but due to the quiet influence of his godly example. And possibly God's doing that in your difficult circumstances. Maybe you're not getting the outcome that you want, but in the midst of that struggle, God is refining you, purifying you. As Jonathan mentioned in the Sunday school lesson, putting Christ on display in your wilderness experience as you travel through that valley of depression and you don't know who's watching. I shared last week how my mother went through her valley of depression when my dad left her. She never got the outcome she wanted, reconciliation with my father. But she had three children that had her eyes on her. And in her darkest hour, we saw Jesus shine. And our lives have never been the same as a result of her testimony. Now, let me ask this question as we sort of bring this to a close. What was God's attitude towards Elijah following his bout with depression? Did that change God's view of uh, this great man of faith? No. Elijah is one of two men, the other being Enoch, in all human history, who never suffered death. God took Elijah straight to heaven to honor his life, to honor his faith, to honor 
his ministry. You, like Elijah, are on a journey with God. Just as there will be mountaintop experiences, there will be. It's inevitable. This is a legitimate spiritual experience. There will be seasons in the valley of depression. You cannot ascend to the next mountaintop without descending into the valley. I pray like Elijah that your time in the valley of depression will lead you to a fresh encounter with God. And that as you hear and follow the still, small voice of God, He will lead you out of the valley of depression to ascend to the next mountaintop. To God be the glory. Pray with me. Father, I know that there are many viewing the message that are struggling uh, with uh, depression. Uh, They find themselves in that valley of depression, in that wilderness. Uh, They've been overcome with fear uh, in these days with the coronavirus and the isolation and the quarantine. Uh, There are many that are struggling with feelings of being forsaken, like Elijah, of being helpless and hopeless. Uh, There have been panic attacks. There have been anxiety attacks. Um, They're struggling with negative thoughts, that they're just a a loser. Their life is useless with utter futility that they've just had enough, can't take it anymore. And, And there's nothing left in the tank. They've just hit the wall and they're exhausted. Just like Elijah, this great man of God, And so, Lord, that depression does not need to be the final word about our lives because you desire to meet us in our depression, to even meet us in that valley or wilderness of depression that we might have a fresh encounter with you like you gave Elijah. And I pray that that would be true of those that are viewing this, that you would use this truth, uh, that you would uh, meet them in a very special way uh, through your word, through prayer, uh, and that you would uh, lead them through that valley to ascend the next mountaintop for your honor and for your glory, for which in Christ's name we do pray, amen. Andy's going to now close our service with a great old hymn, Living for Jesus.
myself to thee, for thou in thine atonement didst give thyself for me.